Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Art Benjamin, a mathematics professor and writer who has written The Magic of Math. It's a delightful book which makes the math you see in school far more appealing than all those boring textbooks they stuck you with back in high school. Art, welcome to the show. Thank you. Please mention the subtitle because I'm very proud of the subtitle. Boy, let me see if I can find it. Solving for X and figuring out Y. Okay, <laughs> glad I had the book available. <laughs> Art, what gave you the idea for writing this book? Well, the subtitle to start, which I thought was pretty clever, and I hadn't seen it used before. Um, but part of my motivation is that these days it seems that we're spending more and more of our time testing our students on a smaller and smaller body of material. And the end result is that a lot of the cool and interesting and fun parts of the subject are being taken out of it. So I wanted to write a book that would, yes, cover all that important fundamental stuff that they're going to test you on, but also, just as importantly, show you the magical side of math, the part that makes people love the subject. Nobody loves the subject because of their ability to quickly you know, solve uh, quadratic equations. but but people can love the subject because of the ideas, because of the applications, because of the surprises. That's why I love the subject, and I, I hope to share my enthusiasm with the rest of the world. I think that's the reason that all of us who actually teach mathematics do, because we love the subject. I like the fact that you discuss the magic of math in the context of topics students are likely to see. It helps give them an appreciation that what they are learning is actually wonderful in the literal meaning of the word, full of wonder. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I like to motivate a lot of my uh, topics with, with mathematical magic tricks because I'm my, as part of my background, I'm also uh, I'm a professional magician. I've studied magic all my life. And the reaction that a magician and a math teacher want are essentially the same. We want people to say, after seeing something magical, how did you do that? Or, wow, that's a beautiful pattern. Why is that true? Now, the magician's not going to tell you, but the mathematician will and, and delights in sharing the secret with you. We have a similar background because what I used to do is um, I teach at Cal State Long Beach, and we have a program where elementary school classes come in for a day and see what we do. And what I always loved was I did card tricks for third graders. Absolutely. It was, you know, card tricks with a mathematical basis. They just loved Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I mean, and that's how you get students engaged in why are we doing this? Or I want to know the secret, you know? Um, I mean, he, here's, a, here's a, a magic trick that I'm sure you'll see right through, but it's a perfect thing to do for a first day of algebra class. And anyone listening to this should try it. Think of a number from 1 to 10, okay? Now, Got it. now double that number. Now add 10 to whatever you're thinking of. Now I want you to divide by 2. 
And finally, I want you to subtract the number that you originally started with. And if I'm reading your mind correctly, you're thinking of the number five. It's all true, but that's because I'm good at arithmetic. If I'd screwed up, disaster would happen. Well, that's true. It, it, I'd <laughs> say about 75% of my audience ends up with the number five, and the other 25% made a mistake somewhere. <laughs> uh, I remember my Uncle Will used to have a similar type of... Uh, a similar type of uh, demonstration for me, except that what he had is instead of having a linear equation such as you have, what he had was a quadratic equation, which generally had two roots, mm. one of which, however, was negative. And so he could always realize that the number that I was originally thinking of was positive. Oh, that's that's interesting. I'd love to see that sometime. Well, I'm sure you can work it out for yourself. Anyway, the book starts off with the anecdote of the young gals quickly adding up the numbers from 1 to 100, which is a magic trick in itself. There's both an arithmetic and geometric way to do this. And I think it's possible for those listeners not familiar with this to see how they did it, or at least how Gauss did it, at least from the arithmetic standpoint. Sure. Do you want me to describe that? Sure. Okay, so... Uh, so suppose you were challenged to add all the numbers from 1 to 100. Now, you could think of a long, tedious way of doing it, but here's a more insightful way that Gauss apparently discovered when he was a boy. His teacher asked the class, add up the numbers from 1 to 100. And Gauss, apparently within moments, said 5,050, except he said it in German. So here's, how it, here's the way Gauss did it. Gauss imagined the numbers 1 to 100 but thinking of the numbers 1 to 50, say, written from left to right in a row. And underneath that row, he had the numbers 51 to 100, but they were written backwards from right to left. So if you can visualize it, uh, the top row goes from 1 to 100, and the bottom row goes from 100 to 51. Now, if you look at the first column, you'll see that we have 1 on top of 100, and those two numbers add to what? 101. Then the, move over a, um, a number, and now you have a 2 on top of a 99. And those numbers add up to 101. Then 3 plus 98. Those numbers add up to 101. In fact, all the pairs of numbers add up to 101, going all the way to the end, where we have a 50 on top of a 51. And those add up to 101. And so what do, so I, I've reduced my, my hard problem to this easy problem of adding 50 pairs of numbers, each of which adds to 101. What do 50 101s add up to? Well, 5 times 101 is 505. So 50 times 101 is 5,050. And that's how Gauss did it. Amazing. And he also did it at something like seven or eight years old and in German, which is even harder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, you know, I was looking through your uh, list of accomplishments, and one of them was that you previously wrote a book entitled The Secrets of Mental Math. And you start out with a chapter on the magic of numbers, which includes a number of tricks for doing mental math. I'll let listeners discover some of these tricks for themselves when they read your book. But I, too, am a huge advocate of the importance of being able able to do mental arithmetic. Why in this era when we just seem to stuff calculators in the hands of every single student, do you think it's so important? Well, you know, I think in this era of calculators, it's less important that we learn how to do all the math that we did on paper 
But I think it's more important that we be able to better work with numbers in our head. It's not every, you don't walk around, even if you carry a phone in your pocket, you know, all the time that has a calculator on it, you don't pull it out when you're reading the newspaper. You don't pull it out when you're listening to a speech or attending a business meeting, right? You, the, you, you make calculated risks every day of your life. And, and it's good to be able to do these calculations all in your head. Um, for example, uh, here's something that they don't, as far as I can tell, teach you in school. If somebody said, okay, I've got a four-digit number times a six-digit number, how many digits are in the answer? Now, they don't tell you that in school. They said, well, the answer, by the way, is 10. Four plus six is 10. So the answer will have 10 digits or possibly nine if the initial numbers multiply to something small. Uh, so it, and, and that's then that's a general rule. If you have an M digit number times an N digit number, your product's going to be an M plus N digit number or possibly one less. Similarly with division. If, if someone said, I've got a 10 digit number divided by a four digit number, how many digits are in the answer? Six digits, 10 minus four or possibly one more. So that's, uh, that would be six digits or seven digits. That's way more important than knowing what the first or second or even the last digit of the answer is. If you don't have a concept of the magnitude of your answer, you're missing the whole point. And we do all this practice on doing, you know, generating exact answers from right to left, by the way, which though is easier to work with on paper in your head, you should be doing the math from left to right. After all, you read numbers left to right, you pronounce numbers left to right, you should think about the numbers from left to right. Finally, the other reason for doing mental math is it actually can be a lot of fun. It can be a fun mental challenge, and I emphasize solving problems in several different ways, because if you can do the problem in more than one way, and if you get the same answer both times, then you're probably right. And if you don't get the same answer, then you know that one of your one of your processes was wrong. At least one of them was wrong. And so it, it challenges you to find the error in your thinking. Uh, the, the better you understand numbers and mental math forces you to understand numbers, the better you're going to do in more abstract mathematics like algebra, geometry, and so on. So it all begins with arithmetic. If it's presented as a sort of a dull, dry Oh, exercise in discipline thinking, put down the two, carry the one, don't ask questions, that you're not going to come away. Most people aren't going to come away with a great feeling of math. But if, uh, if, if, it, if it's a laboratory for creative thinking, then it has a better potential of getting people excited about it. You know, I'm glad you sort of mentioned the contrast here between, or not contrast, but the way that arithmetic leads to algebra, because I've always felt that for people not pursuing a technical career, a thorough knowledge of arithmetic is more important than learning algebra. Where do you stand on this? Well, of all the courses beyond arithmetic, certainly the most important math course is algebra. And what algebra allows you to do is what it gives you, more important than solving quadratic equations, is it teaches you the power of abstraction. This whole idea of letting X represent an unknown quantity 
that's a very powerful, powerful idea. Uh, and, and for example, if you want to ever program a computer, you need to use variables to represent unknown quantities. Maybe that's the, these are the quantities that the user is going to be typing in uh, into your app or program. So uh, the, the idea of a, a variable is so very important. Um, yes, we're, the average person, even the above average person, uh, uses, uses arithmetic just about every day of their lives. And I would say you're probably not using algebra or algebraic thinking every day of your life, but it's still a very important idea. Even if we go back to that magic trick beforehand, in case some of your listeners were wondering about, how do we, how do we explain that with the power of algebra? I asked you to think of a number from 1 to 10. It could have been 1 to 100, is any number that you were comfortable with. But I don't know what your number is. Let's call it N to represent number. Then what did I say? we should do. Let's double that number, which gave us 2n. Then what did we do? We added 10 to it. Okay, so that's 2n plus 10. Then we divided by 2. So let's see, if I divide by 2, that gives me n plus half of 10 is 5. Ah, that's where the 5 comes in. And finally, we subtract the number we started with. We, num we all started with the number n, and that leaves us with 5. So just in the process of explaining that magic trick, we've both seen the power of abstraction and we've started learning some of the rules of algebra. But of course, all the rules of algebra are based on the rules of arithmetic. I mean, you have to be able to know how to add fractions, say as numbers, before you can do things like add one over X to one over Y. So uh, you, you definitely need a solid grounding in arithmetic before you venture into algebra. You know, one of the chapters in your book that I hadn't seen before that I absolutely love was the one on the magic of nine. I once went to a party where a young lady, on learning I was a mathematician, asked me why nine was the master number. Of course, I recognized this was numerology rather than mathematics, but I loved your example on how to figure out what day of the week a given date, such as August 5th, 2001, is. I saw perpetual calendars in the World Almanac, and that had always fascinated me. Yeah, and that was a Sunday, by the way. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> You're right. It's the day I was married. <laughs> so, yeah, um, here's another magic trick that your audience might enjoy. And I do this right in the introduction of my book, and it's explained in, the, in Chapter 3 on the Magic of Nine. By the way, originally I wanted the Magic of Nine to be the ninth chapter, of course. <laughs> but I, I just, because it, the, the magic is so easy to understand and appreciate, I didn't want to risk people not getting to the ninth chapter, right? I, I said, okay, better to put it in early. So I took the square root of nine and gave that chapter three instead. So oh, okay. <laughs> right, right after the algebra chapter. Um, so here, I want you to think of, um, uh, think of a number between 20 and 100. And this time, you really have to keep it to two digits, between 20 and 100. Oh. Okay. Now, uh, add your two digits together. Got it subtract that from your original number. Here's the Got it. part. Okay, good. And now with whatever number you're thinking of, add those two numbers together. You mean the two digits? Yeah, of the, of the number. Yeah, got it. Now, and by, if, if, if all has gone well, you should be thinking of nine at the moment. Amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and there's a lot about casting out nines and things <laughs> like that, which were taught when I was in school that don't seem to be caught, taught today. And it's a shame because it's fun. It's a fun way to check your work. It's, it's not fun. I loved it. But if, 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 it, if, your, if your answer doesn't satisfy the casting out nines test, and it's a real easy test to do, then you know your answer's wrong. And if it satisfies the casting out nines test, then you have extra confidence that your answer is right. I remember one of the first things I ever learned that appealed to me about mathematics is when I was very young, my father used to keep intricate balance sheets of uh, how much he'd spend. And I wanted to go out and toss a football around. And he said, just a moment, I have to reconcile this. I'm off by 36 cents. But that probably means because it's divisible by nine that I reverse two digits. And that's how I learned that the difference of when you reverse two digits, it's always divisible by nine. Absolutely. And here's another cool fact that most people don't know. And this one's not even, it doesn't usually get taught in school. So if you take a number and if the numbers don't add up to nine, then you know it's not a multiple of nine, but you have extra information. For for example, give me a number that's not a multiple of nine. 47. 47. Now those numbers add up to 11 right? Four plus seven is 11. So it's not a multiple of nine, nor is it a multiple of 11, but it's 11 bigger than a multiple of nine. In other words, intriguing. Yeah. So 47 is 36 plus 11. And in fact, that's the basis of the magic trick I just showed you was that when we subtracted their total, we then landed on a multiple of nine, which we knew would then add up to nine. You know, you can probably give some very intriguing, you can make algebra tests much more interesting than they currently are by putting in problems like this and say, write out the algebra for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's how, that's how you get students and adults engaged in the subject. Well, one of the things that engages people about mathematics are Fibonacci numbers. Um, probably a lot of people have heard about them, but they may not know where they come from. Perhaps you could tell everyone. Well, it, from a mathematician standpoint, they just come from one plus one equals two. That is, you start with one and one, add them together, and that gives you two. Now you take the last two numbers, one and two, and those add up to three. Then two plus three is five. Now, you see, we're doing leapfrog here. I, the, the number I just created was 5. Before that was 3. So 3 plus 5 is 8. Then 5 plus 8 is 13. Then 8 plus 13 is 21, and so on and so on. And these numbers are really remarkable because, they, first of all, they show up in applications all over the place, but they also have some really beautiful mathematical properties, some things that, you just, that, that are as awe-inspiring as, to me, any work of art. Um, but a lot of people enjoy them, for example, because they show up in nature, uh, sometimes in rather unusual ways. For example, the, um, the number of petals on a flower is usually a Fibonacci number, two, three, five, eight. You don't see as many flowers with four, six, or seven petals on them. Uh, The number of spirals on a pine cone or a sunflower is often a Fibonacci number. Uh, They show, people use Fibonacci numbers for 
uh, efficient computer algorithms. Some people even use it to make stock market predictions. I mean, they're really rather remarkable numbers, both in terms of their applications and in terms of some of their really fun patterns. Uh, it was interesting that you happened to mention stock market predictions because I had a friend who was fascinated by something called Elliott wave patterns. I don't know whether or not you're familiar with them, but they have a Fibonacci basis. I'm not familiar with them. Um, okay. Um, as we move through your book, you had a chapter which I absolutely love, The Magic of Proofs, because you started with one of my favorite problems that I've used in some of my classes and also in some of my demonstrations for school children, the chessboard with diagonal corners removed. Mm -hmm. It's easy to understand and illustrates the idea that there are hidden patterns beneath the ones we see. That's right. And it gives you an idea of how you can prove that something's impossible which is something that uh, you, can, you, you just can't do outside of mathematical uh, reasoning. Let me, so shall, can I describe the chessboard problem to your audience? I'd love it. Okay. I'd so, love it. So if, if you eat a chessboard, you know, that's an 8 by 8 checkerboard with 64 squares on it. And if I gave you 32 dominoes and said, can you lay those 32 dominoes and completely cover up the board with nothing overlapping, you'd say, sure. You'd put four dominoes in each row and... Easily enough, you'd have all 32 dominoes on your board. And you say, great, okay, that was easy. Um, now, I want you to cut, let's remove, or if you don't want to demolish your board, put a coin on the square that's in the bottom right corner and in the upper left corner. So you're not allowed to touch these squares. Now we're left with 62 squares on the checkerboard. Let's, uh, so, and the question is, can you now cover up the checkerboard with 31 dominoes? Now, the natural thing to do is to try and play around with it and see if you can get it. And after a few tries, you're going to see that it doesn't seem to work. And you might start feeling that maybe this t task is impossible. But how can you prove that it's impossible, you know, short of trying the zillions and zillions of possible combinations of putting down the dominoes? Um, and I remember when a friend of mine showed this to me when I was in high school, he said, um, he says, okay, well, here's a hint. Look at the colors of the checkerboard. The, the checkerboard was black and red. And my first thought was, what does colors have to do with it? <laughs> and then I said, oh, wait a second. Wait a second. The two, the, every domino we put down is going to cover a black square and a red square. And we just got rid of the bottom right corner, which was red, and the upper left corner, which was red. So we now have a checkerboard with 32 black squares and 30 red squares. So it's going to be impossible to cover it with those 31 dominoes because every domino is going to cover a black square and a red square. And I remember the light bulb going off and the smile going on my face. And this was just an example of a proof, a proof that something's impossible. You know, in, in everyday life, people will say you can't prove a negative. But in mathematics, you can. And this is just one of its many, many, many beautiful examples. You know, there's a problem or a, uh, a family of problems that are similar to this that I first encountered when I was in elementary school, because this is probably before your time. But just as Rubik's Cube became famous yep. in, I think, the 1980s, in the 1940s and 1950s, there was something called the 15 puzzle, mm -hmm. which consisted of sliding 
um, numbered squares, one through 15, numbered tiles, one through 15, in a, uh, in a square box, which had a blank space so you could maneuver all the squares. And I was always surprised that some of the arrangements were possible and some of the ones weren't. And that underlies, you know, it's much more sophisticated than what you just discussed, but it's a similar type of idea. Absolutely. It's the issue of parity that um, it turns out that, that just like there are even and odd numbers, there turn out to be even and odd arrangements of things. And in that 15 puzzle, uh, which really was the Rubik's Cube of the early 20th century, um, it, was, it was only possible, you started in an even position, and every move that you made, or and any position that you could make where the, the blank square started at the bottom, bottom right and ended at the bottom right, had to be an even position. And so anything that was an odd position where that blank square was in the bottom right was impossible. And uh, there were big money challenges out there for it. If you can, <laughs> you can solve, if you can reach the position you started with, with the 14th square and the 15th square reversed, you will win $10,000. <laughs> tried and they tried. And of course the the, the the person who popularized the puzzle, a fellow named Sam Lloyd, um, w- you know, knew fully well that it, that he w- he was asking people to do something impossible, as impossible as finding two even numbers that could add up to an odd number. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, you know, one of your starter geometry questions in your geometry chapter concerns a rope and the goalposts in a football field. Why don't you describe that one, which incidentally, in my day, we were putting a rope around the earth for a similar problem. And you discuss that in the next chapter. Oh, sure, sure. So um, so so here, this is pretty amazing. Um, imagine a, a football field, right? It's got 100 uh, uh, b- between the end zones. There is 100 yards. That's 300 feet. And if you add uh, 10 yards each for the end zones, uh, there's 120 feet. From one end zone, uh, 100, I'm sorry, 120 yards from one end zone to the other. So that's 360 feet. Let's imagine we put a rope that's exactly 360 feet long, tied at one goalpost at, at one end of the end zone to the other goalpost at the other end of the end zone. So that rope right now is is taut, 360 feet. Um, yeah, and, and has no slack in it whatsoever. Now let's let's untie it at the end and add one extra foot of rope to it. So we have a little bit of extra slack. So we have 361 feet that goes from one goalpost to the other goalpost. And now the question is, now there's some slack in it. If you were to go to the middle of the football field, say to the 50-yard line, and you would be, you would be able to lift that rope up a little bit because there's a little bit of slack. The question is, how high could you lift that rope? Could you lift it only only enough for an ant to crawl underneath? Enough that you could crawl underneath? Enough that you could walk underneath? Enough that a tr- if you had a ladder, could a truck drive underneath? Right? Uh, how high could you lift that rope? And to everyone's surprise, before you do the math, um, it's you can raise that rope about between 13 and 14 feet off the ground, which just seems impossible that that one extra foot of rope can lead to an extra 14 feet 
that you could raise the rope. Now, if you doubt me, let me try to explain it to you. Imagine that you've lifted that rope as high as you could off the ground. And now, you know, starting with you, you holding that rope in the air, that's one side of a triangle, right? And then um, from you to the goalpost on the ground, that's another side of a triangle. That's a right triangle. And then the rope itself is the hypotenuse of that triangle. So you see we have a triangle that goes from the goalpost to you, then you with the rope raised up, and then the rope all the way to the goalpost. That is a right triangle. Now, how far? what's the length of the base of that triangle? How far is it from you, from the 50-yard line, to the goalpost? It's half of 360 feet, so that's about 180 uh, 180 feet. And then when you raise the uh, 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 rope, well, that's some unknown height, H, okay? And then the hypotenuse is how long? Well, that's half the rope's length. Originally, the rope, which went from one goalpost to the other, had 361 feet. Now it's half that. It's 180.5 feet. And now, if you remember Pythagore the Pythagorean theorem, it says that, that when you have a right triangle with sides A and B and hypotenuse C, it says A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And you don't have to take my word for it. I give you five different fun little proofs of this in the book. But A squared plus B squared is C squared. Now, A squared, that's your height, H. B squared, that's the length of your rope. That's 180. Uh, B is 180. And C is 180.5. And when you do the math and calculate uh, H squared, you get that H squared is something like 180. And H is the square root of that, which is about 13 and a half feet. So it's that, fascinating. Isn't it fascinating? It's yeah. amazing. And I'm glad you brought up the Pythagorean theorem because I've always felt that the Pythagorean theorem was the single most important theorem in geometry and also in mathematics. I remember Pythagoras ordering a hundred oxen to be barbecued when, uh, uh, when he celebrated the discoveries of this theorem. And I always felt that the best theorem that I could come up with in all my research was maybe worth a side of ox ribs. Now, Jim, you say you remember that? You actually got invited to the barbecue that uh, Pythagoras held? I'm older than dirt. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and let me tell you, he had great barbecue sauce. <laughs> and and was with a serving of pie, I assume. Oh, absolutely. But it's, I'm glad you feel that way about the Pythagorean theorem because people, you know, I think it was something like four or 500 years before Christ that this was, uh, that this theorem was developed. And it's astounding how fundamental it is. It's it's really, it really epitomizes mathematics because it is, uh, it is both an important theorem, one with millions of applications. And yet it's also a very beautiful theorem just just in its own right. You look at a triangle, there's nothing that says to you, oh, it's obvious that A squared plus B squared would equal C squared in any right triangle. And yet there are literally hundreds and hundreds of different proofs, many of which look so very different. And they all come to the same inescapable conclusion that A squared plus B squared is C squared. So people, what, and, and people love not just the application of this theorem, 
but the whole set of reasons for why it's true. And, and as I, as I say in the title and subtitle of my book, you know, with the mathematics, it's not just solving for X. It's also figuring out why. Why are these beautiful results true? Um, I'd like to jump a little ahead in your book because um, one of the things about your book that I always thought was very interesting is that there's something there for almost every level of student. It's got arithmetic all the way up through some calculus. So I'd like to jump ahead to the chapter in which you start discussing the numbers I and E. And you lead with perhaps the single equation that's most beloved of mathematicians. Certainly it's most beloved of me. Um, Could you discuss this formula a little and describe how it arises? So every few years, you'll see a mathematics journal or magazine or a science magazine survey its readers and ask for what is the most beautiful formula in mathematics. You know, it's a fun little contest. And and the Pythagorean theorem is up there, but it's usually not the one at the top. The one at the top, almost always, is called is, is, is which was discovered by mathematician Leonard Euler, says E to the I times pi plus one equals zero. Or you could say e to the i times pi equals negative 1. I like to write it the other way as e to the i times pi plus 1 equals 0 because by doing it this way, you've used maybe arguably the five most important numbers in mathematics, right? 0 and 1, which are the fundamental numbers of arithmetic, uh, e, which is the most important number of calculus, Pi, which is the most important number in geometry and trigonometry, and I, the imaginary number whose square is negative one. And somehow these five numbers get together using the five, using fundamental operations of mathematics. There's addition, there's multiplication, there's exponentiation, there's equality. Some people have referred to this as God's equation because it simply uses, you know, all the important numbers and all the important operations in one succinct, beautiful formula. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's a gorgeous formula, but one of the things that is sort of swept under the rug is the fact that there is a convention that's, u- that's used um, as far as this is concerned, and that convention is radian measure for angles. Yeah, yeah. so if... if as as most of your readers and listeners know, if you, uh, a circle we say has three hundred sixty degrees, but what's there's nothing. If you looked at a circle, there's nothing three hundred sixty about it, right? I mean, I mean, why do we use three hundred sixty? Well, I think the ba- ancient Babylonians who had a number system that was based on the number sixty, combined with the fact that the most important circle was the Earth's orbit around the sun, which was about 360 days. Uh, 360 is nicely divisible by 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, and 12. I mean, it's just a very nice number to have around. So for that reason, we, we think of circles as having 360 degrees. But the more natural number to use for that, for the, 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 the angle that describes how going around the whole circle, you might say is the number two pi. Where does two pi come from? If I asked you, 
what's the circumference of the circle? How far is it to go around that whole circle? Well, the circumference formula says it's 2 pi times the radius of the circle. So no matter how big your circle is, if whatever your radius is, let's call that radius r, it's going to take you 2 pi of those r's to get you all around the circle. Um, so, so for that reason, this number, uh, say that to go all around the circle is 2 pi, to go halfway around the circle is 1 pi, to go a quarter around the circle would be 2 pi over 4, that's pi over 2. Um, turns out that winds up having more uh, useful mathematical applications. When we look at the graphs of the trigonometric functions, the sine and the cosine, you want to do this in radian measure. You get a nicer graph. In the subject of calculus, where you're taught that the, the slope of the sine function at a given point, now that what, what, what they call in calculus the derivative of that function, is the cosine function. And the derivative of the cosine function is negative 1 times the sine function. So, you, But that only works if you're measuring your angles in radians. If you measure it in degrees, you get this clunky 180 over pi term that follows you around. And who needs that? We hate that. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things about the square root of minus one, which everybody knows, is it's called an imaginary number, but it occurs in a number of very real situations. I'm aware that it's used in electrical engineering. It shows up in the theory of relativity. And it's one of the things that makes math so magical for me. It's abstractions, which at first may not seem practical at all, have a fascinating habit of popping up in unexpected and valuable places. Well, and and, and to, to do an analogy to something that everyone can relate to, think about negative numbers, right? You have no problem thinking about the number negative three. And yet, the, the Greeks, who the ancient Greeks who developed the Pythagorean theorem, they didn't believe in negative numbers. Fast forward you know, 2,000 years and the, 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 the 1500s or so, they still, even Isaac Newton's time, they didn't quite believe in negative numbers because how could a number be less than zero? How could you have something that was less than nothing, right? I mean, what would it mean to be something less than zero. Well, now we have a, a model for thinking of it. Oh, well, we think of the numbers as lying on a number line, and in the middle of that line is zero, and to the right of zero are the positive numbers, and to the left of zero are the negative numbers. And so those negative numbers are just as real, even if not as visible or, or touchable, as the positive numbers, but they're just as useful. So this whole idea of imaginary numbers where you say, well, how could the square of a number be negative one? If it's positive, the square is positive. If the number is negative, the square is positive. If the number is zero, the square is zero. How can you get negative one? And the answer is, well, you're looking in the wrong place. You're just looking on that line, on that real line. To have an expanded view of numbers, we look at a whole plane. And now the, the imaginary number I is if, 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 pardon the expression, 90 degrees away from that, you know, from the number one. If you think of zero at the middle and one to the right, and you, go, you, you trace a circle 
uh, called the unit circle. You go up 90 degrees there, there you are at the imaginary number I. And if you, if you add another 90 degrees to that, now you're at the other end of the circle. You're at, uh, you're at negative one. And that's really what's going on when we say I times I is negative one. Because when you multiply these, these imaginary numbers together, you add their angles together. So a 90 degree angle plus a 90 degree angle is a 180 degree angle. And it's from that that we're getting the negative one. And the rules of these imaginary and complex numbers follows exactly the rules of normal arithmetic. That is, they're consistent with the rules for real numbers. And uh, it's just fascinating to, to think outside the box or literally think outside the line and expand your your horizons is is it's, it's, it's a mind-blowing experience and speaking of speaking of things that are outside the box one of the things that i also appreciated was the fact that you touched on infinite series representation i'd always wondered how one computes for instance the sine of 37 degrees or something like that the basic angles such as 45 degrees and 30 degrees and the few things that tricks that you can do in trigonometry you learn but i couldn't believe that calculators just sat there you know somebody w- went to the trouble of measuring a 37 degree angle and looked at the the sign as the opposite side over the hypotenuse. So I knew there had to be some trick. And when I saw infinite series, it just knocked me out. Yeah, yeah, me too. And I, and, and for me, that, that really began with a love of numbers. Um, from Even from Gauss's problem of adding the numbers from 1 to 100, you know, and seeing, oh, there was a nice trick for adding those numbers. That's really nice. Then the whole notion of adding infinitely many numbers and getting a finite answer for me that that was that was a a a new level of amazement here i'll give you i'll give you an example um uh if you take the numbers one plus a half plus a fourth plus an eighth plus a sixteenth and so on we keep cutting those numbers in half then that, even though I'm adding infinitely many numbers, one plus a half plus a quarter, eight, 16, 32, 64, and so on, that grand total is exactly equal to two. And here's a way of visualizing this, okay? Imagine you're standing uh, away from the wall, let's say uh, two meters away from you. And you're going to approach the wall by taking smaller and smaller steps. You're going to start by by walking halfway to the wall, which is one meter. Then you're going to walk halfway to the wall again, which is half a meter. And then what's half of that distance? A quarter of a meter and an eighth of a meter. And you're getting closer and closer and closer and closer to that wall. And eventually, now do you ever literally reach the wall, ignoring things like, you know, physical limitations of your shoes and atoms and stuff like that. Well, you don't actually hit the wall, but you get arbitrarily close to it. By that, I mean, eventually you're within a millionth of a meter, right? You're Eventually you're within a billionth 
of a meter. You are as close to that wall. If you want to eventually be within a trillionth of a meter away, you will eventually be a trillionth of, within a trillionth of a meter away. So that means that you're getting that this sum of numbers, one plus a half plus a quarter plus an eighth plus a sixteenth, is getting as close to two as desired. And mathematicians say when that happens, we say that they're equal. In the same way, and this a lot of people will will fight you on, um, a, a number like point nine 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 going out forever is mathematicians will say is equal to one, not just very close to one. We'll call them equal, and I'll give you I can give you three or four different reasons why they're equal. I'll just do one that you could see in your head without um, reading the book. Um, if I said a third is is equal to what in decimal representation? It's point three 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 three. If you multiply a third by three, do you agree you get one? Right, three thirds is one. Well, what happens if you multiply point three 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 by three? You get point nine 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 nine. And since we want algebra to be consistent, we have to call those equal. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I felt when I was looking at um, the chapter in your book on calculus, I feel that a lot of times calculus, because calculus is so different from the mathematics that students have seen before, Mm -hmm. I like the idea that students should see some of what you put in the section on calculus before they actually take a course in calculus as sort of a preview of coming attractions and a preview of the way people actually think because they think differently in calculus. I I think that, yeah, I think introducing some of these wonderful ideas early on uh, is, especially if you say, well, I'm not going to force you to to master this now. I'm not going to test you on it. I just want to give you a a, a preview of coming attractions. you know, and, and what's possible out there and what all of this is good for. Because so much of the math we learn today is delayed gratification. When they say, well, why are we learning this? So often we hear the answer, well, because it'll be on the test. <laughs> or, or, or you'll <laughs> you won't it, hear that from me. <laughs> or, you'll, or you'll need it from a future, you'll need it for a future math class. Well, my feeling was, and still is, well, darn it, if, I, if the only reason I'm learning this is for that future math class, then I should learn it then, when, it, when we need it. You know, why, show me something that I can use right now, right? And my, my experience as a teacher uh, teaching college for the last 26 years, and by the way, I should say, I'm a professor of mathematics at Harvey Mudd College in Claremont, California, and is that students respond to two things. They respond to relevance and elegance. That is, they respond to something because they say, oh, ooh, this is useful. This is a tool I can use. I could see applications of this result. Or it's elegant. It's just, well, maybe I might not build any bridges based on this, but wow, that's just a beautiful pattern. That is mind-blowing. Just like music and art can be for some people where you say, well, I may never apply music in my life, but I'm going to enjoy it just because it's, it's, it's so much fun and satisfying. 
Well, I think you've uh, hit upon something that's very important. And also, um, even though this isn't something that's mentioned in your book, what you just said reminds me of one of the things that I always tell my students on why we're doing this. Um, You're familiar with Hardy's book, A Mathematician's Apology, in which Hardy basically says, look, I've been a mathematician. Um, I study these patterns of numbers. I know that they're totally useless, but I feel that I should be accorded as much respect as artists who spent time studying what they appreciate as beauty. And when Hardy wrote this, which was in the 1940s, um, he spent a large portion of his career uh, working on problems of factoring numbers, feeling that this was totally useless. And then 30 years later, they started inventing inventing the passcodes for automatic teller machines and your bank account and... um, uh, all of all the things that you log into and lots of the algorithms that make your bank account safe depend precisely on what Hardy was working on. So all the things that he thought were beautiful and elegant really turned out to be incredibly practical, but he just didn't live long enough to see just, it. Just like many uh, scientific discoveries, x-rays, for example, were discovered entirely by accident and in mathematics, sometimes things that we pursue simply for its beauty usually just remains beautiful, but sometimes actually has rather profound applications. I- I'm glad you mentioned Hardy because he has one of my favorite quotes about doing mathematics. He says, a mathematician, like a painter or poet, is a maker of patterns. If his patterns are more permanent than theirs, it's because they are made with ideas. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful quote. I'd seen that uh, I'd seen that quote before. And also one of the things that I liked when I came to the end of your book, I like the fact that at the end of the book, you thank the reader. That's very old school. (laughs) You know, I, 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 I wrote the book as if I were there with the audience, with my readers. I mean, as a, I, I give lectures and performances, you know, as a mathemagician throughout the world. And I, you know, I just couldn't imagine ending a show without saying thank you very much. And from you know, when I wrote the book, it was always with you know a, a multitude of readers in mind. But no matter whether the reader was a a parent or a struggling math student or a math lover, I, I felt that all of them deserved to be thanked at the end of the book. And um, uh, in fact, I had to end the book with something fun that I thought everyone could enjoy having to do with magic squares. I just felt, you know, on the last day of classes, you should get a treat, a reward for making it all the way through. So I just brought them pizza. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Art, I'm sure that someone like you has a bunch of projects coming up and maybe you'd like to tell uh, our listeners about some of them. Gosh, um, well, I, I, I think if so, the uh, right now I'm I'm promoting the the book that's out here, the magic of math. Um, and what I have in mind for a future book is one that might be called Math for the Fun of It. So we've already touched upon some of the some of those ideas here. That is, math can be used for activities that we just enjoy like game games and puzzles and magic tricks and sports and you know with just 
rather elementary math, right? Just knowing numbers, knowing some algebra, occasionally a little stuff beyond that, like probability that, that's easy to learn. There's so many fun things and surprises and paradoxes. When I was growing up, my my two loves were numbers and games and magic too. I have to admit magic there as well. And but but what um why I, I went on to major in math was because I love numbers, I loved games, and I found that the better like games like chess and poker and my my favorite of all games, backgammon. And the more I understood the math behind these games, the better I was able to play them. And so that was the incentive for me to learn math, was to be a better game player. But along the way, I discovered all of its beautiful patterns and, and mind-blowing ideas. So I think that would be the next project. It would either be a book or maybe it would be a DVD course. Um, I've created four courses with um, a company called The Great Courses, formerly known as The Teaching Company, uh, on the joy of mathematics on discrete mathematics, on mental mathematics, and most recently on the mathematics of games and puzzles. But I'd like to get one that brings more of the actual magic involved. So again, really tying those two loves together. So I'm spending a lot of the next, a lot, a lot of this next year diving into the mathematical magic literature, of which there's so much out there that I still haven't learned. Um, Art, it's been uh, it's been great talking to you. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Well, you can always Google my name, Arthur Benjamin. Um, I'm at Harvey Mudd College. You can send me an email. It's not hidden. It's Benjamin at hmc.edu. That's hmc, like Harvey Mudd College. Uh, that's the best way to reach me. Let me say uh, because anybody who's listening and has has listened this long to this math interview. Um, my college wants you to know about them. So let me say a, a, a one minute about Harvey Mudd College. We are a small college in Southern California. It's part of the Claremont Colleges system. We have about 800 students, all of whom major in math or science or engineering. Uh, one third of our students yet uh, go on to get PhDs. That's one of the highest percents in the nation. Uh, one third of our coursework is in the humanities, social sciences, and the arts. So students not only know their technical stuff, they know how their how their uh, mathematics and science can is, will impact society. And uh, something I couldn't and they get they they're listed among the top of all highest paying salaries of colleges out there. Um, and something I could not have said to you ten years ago: half the students at Harvey Mudd College are women. And that was not true when I started there 26 years ago. Uh, back then, the ratio of men to women was about three to one. Now it's, well, actually, the guys said it was like pi to one. Um, but now it's 50%. Back then, the girls would say, as far as finding a guy was concerned, the odds were good, but the goods were odd. <laughs> I don't know if that's still true. Then. I like that. That was true then. Anyway, so um, uh, if you love math, science, engineering, uh, please consider Harvey Mudd College for yourself or for one of your children or grandchildren or friends. Um, and I'd love to be one of your professors. Let me end this interview by saying thank you for listening. Uh, Art, thank you so much for uh, contributing what I think will be a very, very entertaining hour for people. Bye. Take care.